It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion with me, your host, Stephen Wallace. After bringing joy to a nation via Shazia, the Afghanistan women's captain, we return to the turf to hear a previous guest, author Felix Francis. On today's show, Felix chats about his new horse racing thriller, No Reserve, his 17th. His new blockbuster focuses on the world of horse racing bloodstock based in Newmarket. Find out how Felix prepared for his new thriller, how he framed the outcome, and much more. No spoilers, but it's a real page-turner from a master storyteller. Felix previously appeared on The Paddock and the Pavilion in episode 93 in November 2021. On today's show, I'm delighted to welcome back the master of suspense and intrigue, Felix Francis. Welcome, Felix. Thank you, Stephen. Lovely to be here. Well, we last spoke uh, when your book Iced had uh, come out, and that was back in episode 93. And I did have the pleasure to meet you the other night at a book signing at the National Horse Racing Museum. How did that go for you? Well, I think it went very well. I mean, we had a lot of people there. Not as many people turned up as said they were coming, but it was a, a very good evening. And I... Um, uh, I spoke uh, about for about half an hour on the on on the latest book, No Reserve, and then uh, uh, signed a lot of books. So everyone seemed to be very happy. Your brother Merrick was also there. He he looked as, as young as you do. Well, that's a surprise because he's uh, nearly three years older than me. But he uh, he runs um, LRT Lambourne Racehorse Transport, so he was there for the sales. Uh, he organises a lot of the transport of the horses that are sold after they, after they've been through the ring. He he arranges for them to be wind tested and does everything, and then they they are sent off in his horse boxes to all over the country and to Ireland and to France. Whoever depends on whoever's bought them. Have you got some more book signings lined up? Yes, uh, I'm in. Uh, I'm going to Tring Bookshop tomorrow night, and then I'm at Hatchards in Piccadilly, 
uh, on Wednesday, and then I've got uh, Hungerford Bookshop and uh, Burford Bookshop and Cheltenham, Rossiter's Bookshop in, Chel- in, in, in Cheltenham later in the month. You enjoy those types of events to, to promote the books? I do. I do. Um, uh, it's always nice to meet your readers and to uh, hear what they have to say about the books. And they're very kind enough to say nice things and also come and buy the book. And and it enables me to sign it for them. And it's always good. I mean, writing is something you do so much in isolation. It's not like a sport. It's not like playing cricket for England when you're in the middle of the field and you're surrounded by thousands of uh, of spectators and they watch every moment every moment of of the match you know writing is done in isolation uh, in an office uh, with the door shut against the dogs and, and visitors and and in silence and it's so it is really lovely when the book is out that you can go out and meet people and meet your readers and hear back their comments yeah i, I enjoy it very much I presume father did the same, did book signings. He did. He did he did book signings both in this country and in America. Uh, and, um, I, I, you know, he he always had a bigger crowd than I do, but uh, it was uh, – he, he used to love doing it. He, uh, he decided that when it came to signing books, he would simply say, what is the shortest uh, – Thing I can write in a book because his hand used to get so tired. So he would write, hi, Steve, uh, Dick Francis. Just hi would be the shortest thing. That was all well and good until he went to uh, until he went to Japan on a book signing and someone pointed out that hi simply meant, sim- sim- simply meant yes. So he had to change it slightly. But everyone came up to him and said, would you write this? And they'd produce all these things like, you know, wishing you a very happy 90th birthday or whatever. And he'd simply write, hi, Dick Francis, you know, because he, uh, he'd he have hundreds of people. We used to go to a bookshop in in Maryland, and uh, and I remember the publishers ringing me up and saying, we're not quite sure of the order. Uh, is the order for eight books or 80 books? Because they seem to have ordered 800. And I said, 800 is correct. And he signed them all in one day. They must have been some some fantastic times traveling with him when he was signing these books. Oh yes, some lovely times all over the states. And uh, going, I remember, I remember going to a bookstore in Denver, Colorado, called the Tattered Cover, which is, uh, I think, one of the greatest bookshops in the world. And my father, of course, being my father, was always early. He was never late. He was always early, and we arrived. 20 minutes before the book signing time and we drove past the store and I stared in through the window and I couldn't see anybody. So I said to my father, right, we're not going in now. Oh, come on, he said, let's get it over with. I said, no, we're not going to arrive early. So we went to a bar across the road and and ordered drinks. Well, we had a drink and took a long time to pay. So by the time we actually went back to the bookstore, we were now five minutes late. And I stared through the window and I still couldn't see anybody. And I thought, oh, well, some you win, some you lose. And the manager of the bookstore was on the was on the sidewalk waiting for us. And when, when they opened the door, they said, oh, thank God you've arrived. You're signing on the fourth floor and we can't move for people. So 
the bookstore was due to close. This was seven o'clock in the evening, and the bookstore was due to close at nine. Well, it didn't close until quarter to eleven because he was still signing books. It was a wonderful evening. And you've also been on local radio to us, and you were on the Premier Racing podcast with Nick Luck. I heard you there. Yes, I've done that with Nick. Nick, I've known for many years. Uh, Nick was uh, a great help with uh, the book I wrote called uh, Bloodline, which was about a, a, a commentator who uh, who worked then for Channel Four Racing, as as Nick used to do. And Channel Four Racing was the was the uh, uh, chosen broadcaster at the time, and Nick, of course, was uh, godson to um, Josh Gifford, uh, champion jockey. So, uh, racing is very much in his. Not only is his work, but it's very much in his blood. And you also did a Discover Newmarket tour. Shout out there to Tracy Harding, uh, when you took some some visitors around the sales ring at Book One at Tattersalls. Yes, we, we did the the, uh, the the Discover Newmarket tour. We went to various places in the in Newmarket, which exist in in No Reserve, and ended up at the at the sales ring. And and Tracy uh, organised it. She's wonderful. What she didn't tell me was that her mother was one of the people on the tour. But uh, it all seemed to go well. So that was, uh, and she she uh, emailed me yesterday saying that her mother hasn't stopped talking about it since we finished. So some, I must have done something right. So was her mother well-behaved? She asked lots of questions. <laughs> yes, and they sat, they sat quietly in the sales ring. I told them that they could enjoy themselves. They didn't have to be too quiet, but they shouldn't wave at their friends because they might end up buying something. Well, let's let's move on to No Reserve. Um, what what number is that for you for a Dick Francis novel? Well, it's actually my number 17. The first one I wrote came out as a Dick Francis novel, and the next four had our joint names on, but I wrote them, he read them. In fact, he didn't even read the fourth one because uh, Dad died in 2010 and he was uh, so unwell for the last few months of his life that he never actually read what I'd written and the book was only half written when he died. Uh, so No Reserve is is number 17 and I've already started number 18. Yeah, I was going to come on to that about number 18. So how many did Father do? You, you're a long way behind him yet. Oh, God, I've got to go on for – I'll be 90-something if I catch him up, there were 39. But he started younger than I did. My first book was published when I was 53. His was published when he was 42. So, well, 41, I think, actually. So beginning of 1962. So he had a few years on me. Yeah, we'll have to set up a handicap system to, to work out when you actually are ahead of him, sort of thing. <laughs> well, perhaps it'll be a DLS. Uh, <laughs> Well, no reserve. The higher the stakes, the higher the risk. Um, no spoilers for me because I've already read the book. Uh, it's uh, a real page turner and it's wonderful to see you return to the home of racing, Newmarket. Yes, well, it's the third one I've done based in and around Newmarket. And Dad did a couple. So, I mean, Newmarket is the headquarters, as, the, as it's colloquially known. Uh, I mean, thoroughbred racing as we know it uh, started in Newmarket as a result of the uh, of King Charles the uh, moving there to avoid the plague 
uh, and indeed then the Great Fire of London. So racing in Newmarket has been going on since the 17th century. And in fact, his father before him, Charles I, who, who lost his head, uh, had a palace in Newmarket and used to uh, gallop his horses around. So uh, Newmarket is very much um, involved in, in it's in the blood of, of horse racing. Not that all my books have been set there. I've set uh, quite a few in Lambourne, in and around Lambourne, which of course is a the centre for more more for steeplechasing than it is for flat racing. And uh, Iced, which uh, which was two books ago, uh, was set up in um, uh, in in all, in the north, and and Hands Down was set in Midland. So. Uh, there have been, I, I try and spread it around. And in no reserve, there's also part of it is, is set in Ireland, uh, all good racing country. And Tattersalls, has that featured in a Dick Francis novel before? Well, it has briefly in, in my book, Crisis, but not during the sales. Uh, but, uh, but, but Bloodstock sales have featured before. Uh, my father wrote a book called Knockdown. Uh, back in the 70s, but it was not based in Newmarket, and it was from the point of view of a bloodstock agent, uh, and it starts at Ascot sales. Uh, but um, uh, Tattersalls has, um, even though in the book the, the sales company is not referred to as Tattersalls, I had lots of help from from everyone at Tattersalls, from auctioneers, from uh, everyone at, at uh, Park Paddocks. and. Uh, uh, they were a great help to me, and uh, I hope that they won't be too upset by uh, by what goes on in the book. Now, Europe's uh, leading bloodstock auctioneers, uh, Tattersalls, how did you go about the research? Uh, was it interviews, your visits? I, I, vis I started off by visiting and going and watching the sales. Uh, in fact, I think the auctioneers got quite fed up with me sitting in the same seat uh, um, for st the day after day. And, and recording uh, on my uh, iPhone videos of them of them selling. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't really put the patter into uh, the book because otherwise it would take pages and pages of words. But um, I, I think I, I I've got it about right. And and I, I wanted to set the book in uh, around the bloodstock sales. I mean, racing and gambling are intertwined. Uh, they always have been and always will be. But the biggest gambles in racing don't occur with the bookmakers or in the betting shops. The biggest gambles occur in the sales rings, where people pay a, a fortune for horses and, and uh, in the hope that they'll turn out to be champions and sires of future champions. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, there was an American cult called Justify, which was sold for half a million dollars in the, uh, the Keeneland. Uh, sales ring in 2016. Well, it went on to win the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness and the Belmont Stakes. Uh, and even though its winnings on the track were an impressive $3.8 million, it is uh, it's expected to earn $150 million in stud fees over its stud career, making it worth six times its own weight in pure gold. Uh, so that was a winner. Uh, but Snaffy Dancer, who, who your listeners 
were made heard about, you know, infamously uh, uh, was sold for $10.3 million back in 1983 and never made it to the racetrack and uh, um, was also found to have fertility problems. So the biggest gambles occur in the sales rings. And it was something I wanted to bring to life in uh, No Reserve. Can you give us a no spoilers? Because I've read the book and I know the the outcome, uh, a little bit of a synopsis for listeners who hopefully will buy the book. Well, I hope they will too. Uh, it starts off with my main character, Theo Jennings, who is a, a young auctioneer at, well, we won't call it Tattersalls, but the Newmarket Sales Company. And it starts off with him selling a, a colt for three million guineas. Uh, all horses in Newmarket have traditionally been sold in guineas. And a guinea is a pound and a shilling or a pound and five P now. And uh, he he's so excited having sold this horse for that money. It's his first biggest sale um, that he's first million guinea plus sale he's had. But he overhears a conversation which tends to imply that the uh, uh, the bidding was artificially inflated uh, by collusive bidding between two people. Uh, and then the following morning, the horse is found dead in its stable, uh, a seemingly of, of natural causes. But Theo is not so sure, so he sets out to investigate. And someone seems determined to stop him and will go to any lengths to do so, including murder. And I can vouch that it's a, a real page turn. That's one of the questions I wanted to ask you. You go to bed, say, I'm going to read a couple of chapters, and then you've you've read six and it's one o'clock in the morning and that sort of thing. How do you, how do you create this page turning writing style? Well, I, I suppose I, I learned it at my father's knee. You might say. I mean, I, I was uh, just eight years old when the first Dick Francis novel hit the bookstore stands, and I grew up with them. And uh, I mean, I wrote bits of Dick Francis novels way back from being a a seventeen year old A level physics student designing a bomb to blow up an aeroplane in Rat Race and uh, writing the computer program in Twice Shy, which is not something I'm terribly proud of now because it's so out of date. But it is, you know, I feel that we, I have learned how to make make it a page turner. It is, there's nothing better than for someone coming up and saying, Felix, I've got a bone to pick with you. I was up until five o'clock in the morning to finish your book because I, I needed to know what happened. And part of me is, absolutely delighted and then part of me thinks my god took me a whole year to write that and they read it in one day but of course that is what every author wants and unfortunately I can't write them as quickly as people can read them and so uh, they'll have people will have to wait until next year for the next one when when do you write mornings afternoons evenings um, I'm not terribly good in the early morning, but I try and get to my desk about 9, 9.30. And then I write through really until about uh, 7 o'clock is, is, will be the latest. Uh, my wife will bring me through coffee during the day and lunch. I will not, I'll often stop for lunch, but if things are going well, keep at it. And then... Uh, I will have a glass of wine about seven o'clock and that will be it. But actually, your mind never stops. Uh, sometimes I, I go, I think about the book all the time. 
Uh, I go to sleep thinking about it. I wake up in the night thinking about it. And um, I mean, my my dear wife, Debbie, says that she loses me for six months. And I'm now living with the characters as opposed to living with her. Uh, but um, so far, so good. Touch wood. Um, they've all turned out to at least have a finish by the by the end of March when the book is due at the publishers. And do you know the ending at the start or does the story develop as you write? Uh, I, I absolutely do not know the, the ending at the start. I mean, I was a, uh, my my father and mother and me, we were all great friends of, uh, of, of Phyllis James, P.D. James. And she used to plan the whole book out. She used to have a great sheet of paper on her sitting room floor, which she would stick together lining paper, uh, wallpaper, lining paper. And she would have arrows back and forth between the characters to show the, the connection. She would plan the whole book out before she started writing. And I'm not like that. Uh, I, I have a good idea for a beginning and I start writing the beginning. And the characters tend to take over. Um, so anyone who says, oh, I knew who'd done it from, from day one, they were just a lucky guess because I don't know. And, and often I try and make it so that there's three or four, even five people who could be uh, the villain. Not that all the books are, um, are, are whodunits. My father wrote a book called Bone Crack back in 1971, which is my favourite book of his. And it's and partly that my it is my favorite because it's not a who done it. You know who done it in the very first chapter. It's not so much who did it. It's how the hell do I get out of this mess? And as part as an homage to that, uh, I wrote a book called Refusal. It's a Sid Halley book, and uh, in that one, you know who the villain is right from the start. And it's how uh, Sid goes about defeating the villain rather than uh, actually uh, the reader learns how he def how he goes about defeating the villain rather than who the villain is. Um, but most of them, I suppose, are, are uh, whodunits to an extent and, and, and no reserve is certainly um, uh, whodunit. And, you know, perhaps you think you know whodunit right at the beginning and you may be right, but you don't know who he done it with. I can tell listening to you how much you do enjoy writing, though. I do enjoy writing, but I enjoy it more when it's finished. So here I am at the beginning of the next one. So it, it seems like I'm facing the north face of the Eiger and thinking, how the hell am I going to get to the top of this uh, in the next five months? So it is... Um, I suppose I've done it 17 times and I, I, I tell myself, well, you must be able to do it one more time. But every year the expectation is greater. Uh, people, um, some people have been kind enough to say that they think No Reserve is the best book I've ever written. And which means that they're looking forward to the next one because they want the next one to be even better. And it is a, it is a struggle. Um, to uh, always, I mean, it's a struggle to come up with the plot. Uh, my father wrote 39, I've written 17. So that's, uh, you know, that's 56 
storylines you can't use again. So, uh, and every time I think of a storyline, every time I find a loophole in the the racing authority rules, uh, the next thing that happens is they close it off. As soon as I've, as the book comes out and someone from the BHA reads it, the loophole is closed off. So it becomes increasingly more difficult. Back in the 60s, my father wrote a book called Blood Sport, which was about uh, kidnapping a stallion, or not kidnapping, but horse napping a, a, a stallion and using the stallion to uh, improve uh, breeding stock. Well, it was all a good story at the time, but you couldn't do it today because every thoroughbred foal born in the worldwide is DNA tested to, to ensure that it is the, the son or daughter of the uh, of the horses they claim it is. And so uh, blood sport, great story as it is, just wouldn't work in today's climate. Just uh, technology has moved on. Not to say that it's not a good story to read if you want to. A lot of my uh, uh, writing colleagues write what are called golden age mysteries. Uh, golden age mysteries are mysteries from back in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. And I just think it's a cop out to, to not have DNA or mobile phones. Uh, whereas I write uh, my books in the present day. Yeah, I've got visions here of the BHA or officials of the BHA getting your book each time just to try and sort of uh, quell any future problems that they might have. Well, I had a character who was a BHA uh, uh, investigator. And at the time, Steve Harmon was chairman of the BHA. And he wrote, he read the book and he, and he got in touch with me and say, it's not like that. I said, Steve, doesn't matter. It makes for a good story. You know, never let reality get in the way of a good story. I think I can't remember who said that, but uh, it's absolutely right. But you've just signed a new book deal. So you've got to keep going at the moment, haven't you? Yeah, I've signed uh, the, the deal is for the next one. And the next one, well, the working title is Joint Enterprise, which is a uh, uh, a legal term uh, for something you, you can get convicted of murder through joint enterprise, even if you didn't pull the trigger or do the stabbing. Uh, but it's going to be about um, owning of racehorses in syndicates, uh, uh, which seems to be increasingly popular uh, because of the expense of owning a horse outright, that people now own uh, increasingly own horses in syndicates. Uh, but what about if someone, a member of the syndicate or someone else, wants to control the syndicate uh, and determine where the horse runs and to that matter, how it runs. So we'll wait and see. Do you have other well, ideas for future ones as well? Oh, you're joking. It's bad enough trying to think up one storyline, let alone another one. I, I, the, the, the one after that I will start thinking about when this one is finished in March. If only, I mean, people say to me, how many storylines did your father actually leave you? Well, the answer is you didn't leave any at all. Uh, and all the ones that I wrote with him, uh, and indeed the first one I wrote, which came out as a Dick Francis, he didn't have any storylines in there at all. So, uh, but I mean, my horse, my books are not about the horses, they're about the people. Racing and thoroughbreds are simply the canvas against which I 
paint the human story. Uh, so, um, you know, the publishers say, well, if you wrote a book about something which wasn't to do with racing, uh, we'd publish it, but we'd rather you didn't because that is the, uh, uh, as it were, the the, uh, the mark of a Dick Francis novel. And a Dick Francis novel is still printed on the front of mine. You know, it's no longer a, an individual. It's now uh, more more of a trademark of the type of book it is. Talking of racing, do you still get to go racing yourself? I do. Uh, I, I get. I go to races. I go racing fairly frequently. I mean, I went to Newbury uh, in September. I went to uh, at the Ebor meeting uh, in York in August. I went to um, the. I went to Royal Ascot. Uh, I go to Cheltenham quite frequently. Um, I, I wouldn't say I go racing every week, uh, but I probably go every month. And when we last spoke, uh, there was a new statue of your father that was, go- was going to be unveiled at Aintree. I'm sure you were there when that was unveiled. I was. It was the most awful day. It, it, it blew a gale. In fact, the night before the unveiling, the, the statue, which was not pro- the, you know, the, the anchoring um, uh, glue and cement hadn't properly set, and the statue blew over the night before it was due to be unveiled, crashing through the uh, the plate glass window of the uh, of the um, weighing room. Uh, as I said to the chairman of, of Aintree, Dick Francis has another fall at Aintree. Uh, but they managed to get the statue back up uh, and, and re-cemented it in place. And it was unveiled by the Princess Royal in an absolute torrential rainstorm. Uh, uh, but she was very gracious. I uh, very fortunately was able to sat, sit next to her at lunch. Uh, and it's a great joy to me to uh, to have the statue uh, at Aintree. It was all, wasn't my in, uh, initiation. It was initiated by a man called Peter Johnson from the British um, uh, uh, Sporting Arts Trust. And, um, but it is a great joy uh, to to me to know that my father stands outside the weighing room with his beloved Aintree. He loved that race course in spite of it being the, the scene of his greatest disaster on Devonlock in the 1956 Grand National. Uh, but I, I look forward to going back there shortly uh, to tell him all about no reserves. The 1956 Grand National, the race that finished, that you must have seen more than anyone else in the whole world. Oh, I've watched that. The, it wasn't televised. It was the Pathé News film. Uh, and there were a quarter of a million people at Aintree that day. I mean, a crowd like you'd never get today. Uh, and they were all cheering for the Queen Mother's horse. And my father uh, thinks that it was the, the cheering of the crowd that, that, I mean, the horse pricks his ears just as he's coming towards the winning post. And my father thinks at that point this wall of noise hit him I've watched the film a thousand times at least. I just wish he'd win it once. Well, thank you very much, uh, Felix, for joining me on The Paddock and the Pavilion. I've got to hand my book over to my mother shortly because she she wants to read it, and I can recommend it to any of our listeners. Uh, haven't given any secrets away on this podcast. Well, uh, I hope your mother enjoys it. 
and when I signed the book for you, Steve, I expected your mother to buy her own copy. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, I'm sure that the more people that read it, doesn't matter how they get hold of it, uh, it'll be a joy for me. I I hope that uh, people listening to this podcast will will give it a go. If, if you've read Dick Francis' books in the past uh, and you feel that uh, you haven't read any of mine, then uh, give them a go because uh, I, I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Well, thank you again. I can vouch you didn't say hi, Stephen, uh, Felix Francis in the book. <laughs> Stephen, it's been lovely to talk to you again. Uh, and and uh, hope we hope we will talk again soon. Thank you very much. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.